Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. At Redeemer, we are committed to connecting people to God's transforming love. And I hope this podcast is just one more way that you connect to God's presence this week. We have kicked off this new year with a series called 2020. Where is your focus? In this six-part series, we'll explore areas of our lives that need a little bit of refocusing in order for us to live fully into what God has called us to. So here is week five of 2020 from Senior Pastor Bill Clark. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Really good to see you on a day that is going to be 72 degrees in February. Thank you for coming to church. You could have just stayed home. Well, we'll get you. And then there's something else going on tonight, but I don't remember what that is. But um... So today we continue our series on having 2020 vision for God's preferred future for each one of us. And this morning I want to talk about the meaning and the purpose of that word that's frequently uttered in church settings, fellowship. I want to talk about what fellowship looks like, how important it is, and what it means. I want to start with a true story about uh, one of Christianity's modern heroes. So go back with me to the 1930s in Germany. It was a horrible time. Hitler had taken over the reins of power, and things were moving in a very, very bad direction. Meanwhile, there was a Lutheran pastor and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may have heard of him, who became known for not only his deep commitment to Christ, but also for his courage in the face of the advance of the Nazi party in Germany. During that time, history's most malevolent figure, Adolf Hitler, emerged as the leader of the German government. And one of the first things that Hitler did was he told all the churches through letters and edicts and through people who would go as emissaries to the pastors, he, he told them that they, what they could preach and what they couldn't preach about. And they would give model sermons to pastors. And the model sermons would be about the glories of Nazism, about all the great things Hitler was going to do. Well, there was at least one pastor, and actually there were many, who, um, who wouldn't do that, who wouldn't buckle down. One of them was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Hitler was also going through the persecution of the Jews at that time. So it was a horrible time. Actually, he was going after everybody whom he called Untermenschens, which is German for the under people, the, the people who don't count, including the Jews and other unworthy classes of people in his mind. And so church after church was bowing to Hitler's persuasion and to his pressure on the churches. And few remained attached to their scriptural calling. But one of those who did was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was quickly put on an arrest record to be, uh, to be arrested as soon as possible by the Nazi authorities for his not buckling under to Hitler's demands. Meanwhile, American Christians had heard about the problem. And so a seminary in New York, New York Union Seminary, invited Dietrich Bonhoeffer to come and to join the faculty 
They really didn't need another faculty member, but he was a great theologian and a great pastor, so they invited Bonhoeffer to bring his family to New York to escape the Nazis and to teach at their seminary. So Bonhoeffer really wrestled with it, but he took his family for their protection, went to New York, and stayed there a year. And he taught there, and he was a, became quickly a beloved professor, a real genius, a wonderful man, a great theologian. And so he went to New York. They were safe there. But he'd only been there a year, and he finally decided, I've got to go home to my people. I've got to go home to my church. They're going through such tough times, I need to be there with them. And so after a year in New York, and he escaped to New York just in the nick of time because the Nazis had closed the door to immigrations out of Germany. But he came back, snuck back into Germany, and there he was with his people again, the people he loved, the people he missed, the people he needed. And he resumed his fight against the horrors of the Nazis. For doing that, eventually he was imprisoned. And with just a few days left in the war, Hitler gave a personal order to have Dietrich Bonhoeffer hung for giving his regime such a difficult time. And so just days before the war ended, days before he would have been safe, he was hanged. During all of this, Bonhoeffer became a beloved figure around the Christian world. And one of the books he wrote about his experience and his longing to be with the church, to be with his people, to be with the people he cared for, was a book called Life Together. It's become a theological classic. It's about fellowship. And it's really a classic of Christian literature these days still. It's still in print. And so what I'm about to teach this morning from Philippians chapter 1 is also based on the book Life Together. So now the first question for this morning, what is Christian fellowship and what are we supposed to do when we're fellowshipping? What's it mean to be in Christian fellowship? I have to say that I remember in church as a little kid, I remember, I remember fellowship hall at this church we went to in Ardmore, Oklahoma. That's apparently where fellowship was supposed to happen was in fellowship hall. And we'd frequently have potluck lunches after church. Fried chicken, this is what I remember. I'm sure there were other things, but I remember the fried chicken and the jello mold salads. <laughs> I'm not saying they were moldy, I'm just saying they were in jello molds. And I remember thinking, this is pretty fun, notwithstanding the jello. But anyway, we, we would eat together, and that was Christian fellowship in Fellowship Hall. And we'd hang out, and we'd go home. So I liked, I liked that. But I think fellowship has a broader meaning than that. Fellowship, from the Christian context, is the concept of doing together, doing life together in a wholesome, healthy way. To start, it means sharing in the life of Christ together or being the community in community with others who love Jesus. So it's doing life together, being in community with other people who love Jesus. That's fine as a definition, but what's the value? Well, Paul talks about it 
in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. It's easy to get to if you want to use page 1825, but if you'll find your Bibles or turn your phone to it or whatever you want to do, there's just a few verses I want to unpack here on this Communion Sunday that help us to identify the feelings, the passion, the importance of life together in fellowship. So Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. <clears throat> Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Now, hear this, hear this next piece and understand as Paul's writing this, he is in prison and he is in chains. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So this is Paul's beginning of one of his most significant letters to the Philippian church. It is important to understand the context. As I mentioned, Paul's in prison, and he was away from the people he loved. He was away from them. He was not in physical contact with them. His situation was similar to Bonhoeffer's. Bonhoeffer's year in New York, safe, but away from his people. Paul wasn't particularly safe, but he was away from his people. He couldn't see them. He couldn't share a meal with them. He couldn't join in the Lord's Supper with them. But he could and did pray for them. In verse 4 we read this, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I read that again because whatever else it is, whatever else fellowship means to us, fellowship is praying for your fellow sisters and brothers in Christ. One of the problems we Christians actually have is we, and I, if this doesn't fit you, I'm not trying to be offensive, but sometimes it fits me. We talk about prayer more than we actually pray. And we talk about the importance of prayer more than we actually pray. But imagine for a moment you were locked away in a prison cell in another country. And you remembered your friends, fellow sisters and brothers in Christ here at Redeemer. Or if you're a visitor where your own church might be. What can you do? You can't escape unless someone slips you the key You've got only one thing you can do. You can pray. You can pray for the people whom God brings to mind. You can pray for those people and you can long for them in prayer. You can pray that they are well, that they're experiencing the fullness of Christ, that their lives are going well. You can pray. And that's what Paul said he did. That's the one thing they couldn't take away from Paul. They could take away his freedom, 
They could take away his, any sense of satisfaction of good food or friendship or direct fellowship, but they could not take away his ability to pray for his friends. And so that's what he did. Every week, we have wonderful people in our church who compile the, the prayer lists, one in particular, but, and sends them out to the people who are committed to praying for the prayer needs of the church. And I'm, I'm not a great prayer warrior, but I pray for those every week. It's my highest privilege to pray for those people. And sometimes, perhaps even often, after a worship service, someone will come up to me and say, Bill, would you pray for me? I'm having a surgery this week, or there's something going on, or whatever it might be. And I say, yes, as God brings you to my mind, I will pray for you. It's the greatest privilege of what I get to do. Because I hear about struggles that people are having or are about to have, and I sometimes think, oh, they're asking me to fix something. And they're not asking me to fix anything. I don't have the power to fix, but God does. And so it becomes this tremendous privilege to be able to pray for people, to lift them up before God. 99% of the requests I get and the conversations I have have nothing to do with me wanting to fix anything. They have to do with wanting to know that their church is praying for them. They're simply a sister or brother in Christ who is asking another brother to intercede for them, to remember them before God. That's the highest calling of any of us. In the middle of Bonhoeffer's tremendous struggle, he gave this quote, and it became well-known in Germany. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. That's how important this is. Praying for one another is one of the most important things we can do as a church. It not only bonds us to God, it bonds us to each other. It bonds us to our fellow sisters and brothers in Christ. And it moves the hand of God in ways we can hardly even understand. God responds to our prayers. God responds to his people. That's how important it is. We live for it or we die spiritually without it. And in this notion of having 2020 vision in the new year, I would say one of the most important things we can do is to ramp up our life of prayer, beginning with one another, beginning with one another in the church. Paul, as he remembered the Philippians, which was likely a lot, sitting in that prison cell by himself, he could still pray, and he did. And if we can't or don't pray for one another, we're on an adventure of missing the point of Christian fellowship. The second point of Paul's introduction in this letter is found in the second half of that verse I read before, but I want to read it again. I thank God for each of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Christian fellowship isn't just about praying, although that's primary. Christian fellowship is what happens when people in the church roll up their sleeves together and they bless the world together. They bless each other together. 
They find a mission like the mission we have in Northwest Tulsa, and we share in that together. We work together for the common good. We work together for the help of other people, especially people who are not seemingly as blessed as we are. Paul thanked them for this partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Some time had gone by since that church had begun. Paul thanks them with his remembrance of their help and him with him for him in starting a church and in keeping that church going. True community, true fellowship isn't about talk. It's not about potluck suppers. It's about serving other people. And the happiest Christians are those who serve other people. We can become self-absorbed. We become so worried about our own issues, and they're real issues. We become so self-absorbed, though, that we begin to drop off in our service of one another within the church, within the body, and outside the body. But the happiest Christians are those who serve other people. They may become tired. They may become stretched pretty thin. Some of them maybe need to take a break. But their energy is toward others, and they get outside themselves, and their mental and physical health improve as well as their spiritual health. And finally, verse 6. Well, there's one more I want to share, but verse 6 is especially hopeful and helpful for me. Paul says these amazing words. I'm really struck by these words. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How would that, if you were reading that letter from Paul, you were the church at Philippi, you get a letter from Paul in jail, and he could have been he could have been whining, he could have been telling them over and over again not only how much he missed them, but how unfair this was, how terrible this was, how dreadful this whole experience has been. But what does he say? He says, being confident on this, in this, being confident in this, I believe that God will bring to completion what God has already started in your life in the day of Christ Jesus. Now that's encouragement. That's real encouragement. As I look out at you, I, I just I think of I wish I could just look you in the eye, each one of you individually, and say, God is going to bring to completion what He's already started in your life. That's the promise. God is going to bring to completion. So whatever needs to happen in our lives to grow, to stretch, to become ever more like Christ, God is going to bring that to completion. It's not just that he's going to answer every prayer just like we hoped he would. He might. He might not. But he's going to bring to completion our very lives, our very selves. In a few moments, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. And the people you will see coming down the aisle for the stations at the communion are your brothers and sisters in the faith. I want you to do a little mental exercise as you're waiting to come forward today or when you return back to your seat. I want you to picture God at work in that person. You may know them, you may not know them. Look around at your neighbor. 
God has begun a good work in that person. That's the truth. God has already begun a good work in that person. Everybody you see up here. And God will bring that person to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Every day as we pray for one another, as we serve one another, as we serve with one another, we have moved a bit closer to our completion. It will happen. God will ultimately make us complete. That's the promise. That's his goal. We have only to seek his purposes. Years ago, there was a little phrase that went around. I would see a couple of people now and then with a T-shirt on it, but they had the little slogan on it. It said, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. It's not a bad slogan. Please be patient. So there may be a person even whom you see come down the aisle and you're just not so sure about them. Please be patient. God is not finished with them yet. And here's perhaps the the sweetest verse from chapter 1 of Philippians. Verse 8. God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, the church can actually be a place of really healthy affections. Really healthy affections. In a world where there are so many disordered affections, the church can be a place where the affections are real and genuine Genuine Christian fellowship involves heartfelt affection. Those people who you see coming to communion, feel free to pray for them as they come down the aisle or as you go up the aisle. Pray for them. You may not know them, but just say a quick prayer as you walk up to receive communion. Feel free to have heartfelt affection for them. You might as well start now In heaven, you have to. So let's get an early start on this and have a genuine, heartfelt affection for our sisters and brothers. Since the beginning of the Christian faith, people of the world who looked at Christians would frequently comment about the one most distinctive thing of those people called Christians. And it's recorded in a lot of ancient history. See how those people loved one another. See how those people loved one another. That's what sets us apart. We're certainly no better than the rest of the watching world. We're sinners just like the rest of the watching world. But God has given us His supernatural love which we have received into our heart and souls and in turn we love one another with the affection of Christ Jesus. Treasure your fellowship. Treasure the ability to pray for one another. This is, after all, our calling. In a moment, I'll call the communion stewards forward and we'll receive Holy Communion together. But the way we do this is simply we'll have four stations in front and we do this by intinction where you take a piece of the bread and just dip it lightly into the cup and receive both elements together. We remember the fellowship moment 
the, the really ideal fellowship supper. When Jesus was with his disciples and in the upper room, he gave this, them this enduring, enduring right, this enduring instruction to remember him, to cherish him, to join in his Holy Spirit together as a fellowship of followers of Christ. And he said to them first, this is my body which is given for you. And he broke it. And he said, take this and do this in remembrance of me, for this is my body given for you. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which was shed for you. Do this, drink this in remembrance of me. The very next day, Jesus would be crucified, but he went to that horrible crucifixion with a deep longing and love in his heart for all of his people. As you come to receive the Lord's Supper and as the communion stewards come forward, remember this time, this motion, this action where we pray for one another and we offer one another a sign of peace, a smile, a prayer. So as these prepare to serve you, just remember, as you walk down the aisle, pray for those folks you walk by. Pray for them. It's our greatest privilege. Table is ready. Please come. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.